That's the truck, Kramer. The truck! Look, Newman, I told you to let this thing go! No, 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 listen to me. Most days, the post office sends one truckload of mail to the second domestic regional sorting facility in Saginaw, Michigan. Uh-huh. But, on the week before holidays, we see a surge. On Valentine's Day, we send two trucks. On Christmas, four, packed to the brim. And tomorrow, if history is any guide, we'll see some spillover into a fifth truck. Mother's Day. The mother of all mail days. <laughs> I guess we signed up for the truck. A free truck? <laughs> oh, boy, that completely changes our cost structure. Our G&A goes down 50%. We carry a couple of bags of mail and the rest is ours. Newman, you magnificent bastard, you did it! What's the collecting thing is? Well, I don't want to be a secondary character. <laughs> Hello, Ivan. Hello, Steve. We're a Seinfeld podcast out of Melbourne, Australia, and every week we take a random episode of Seinfeld and examine the secondary characters from that episode. And this week we're doing our last two-parter, and uh, I would say a classic, The Bottle Deposit from Season 7. Yeah, episodes 21 and 22 of that season. And Stephen, I have in my notes here that I feel like if Seinfeld ever did a movie, like, you know how a lot of TV shows did movies in the 90s, like Beavis and Butthead, and well, later on, The Simpsons in the 2000s, they'd have, like, their own movie. I feel like if Seinfeld did, like, a feature length film in the cinema this would be the episode i reckon it was just like there were so many different genres at play there was like comedy there was kind of like thriller a bit of mystery i don't know it just had it was like a hodgepodge of of genres yeah i would say this or the trip maybe because that's uh you know a cross-country adventure but uh i i know what you mean by by uh this you know, feeling more like a movie, you know, a movie style than a than a typical twenty two minute sitcom. Yeah, it was just written very, very differently. I don't know. There's just a lot of moving parts, and uh, it was very enjoyable. Yeah, no, and the way uh, it all comes together at the end is is brilliant as well. Yeah, it was very well done. It was just it was just different to other ones that we've reviewed. That's right. Uh, if you mm. want to get in touch with us, you can email us at bidwabasspodcast at gmail.com. You can check us out on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Reddit. We have, even have a Discord. I don't think anyone is actually on the Discord, but uh, if you want to join. <laughs> Uh, a black hole go ahead you can listen to all of our previous podcasts on whatever app you choose and if you want to help us out that would be awesome if you could rate us or review us it really helps us out with visibility and uh spreading the word and you can support us financially too that's right on patreon patreon uh, rather for a couple of bucks a month you do get bonus content including podcasts season 11 and curbcast and uh you can also do one-off payments to paypal if you're not so inclined with subscriptions so uh and speaking of reviews Stephen, we actually got a really good review on apple podcasts the other day i'll read that out thank you very much to uh, sam Sandra D, she's from the US, I assume she, because <laughs> her name's Sandra. The title of her review, her five-star review, was Best of Seinfeld, and she says, These two are excellent and very, very funny. Love their Seinfeldisms and just how they relate to each other, and good voices to listen to, and it's a guaranteed laugh. A great escape from the world today. So uh, that's, they're very kind words. So thank you, Sandra. Yeah, if you're listening to this one, thank you so much. It was really, really nice to listen to, uh, especially because we've uh, spent so much time talking about how we hope that you know our 45-minute podcast per week brings you a time a bit of joy in an otherwise grim 12 months so that was very um very nice to read thank you yeah it was for sure and finally we do have a seinfeld facebook group it's a bigger seinfeld community online it's called seinfeldisms uh we're over 130,000 members now uh so check that out on facebook lots of cool little things coming up and uh yeah we also do a weekly section called seinfeldisms which is the uh namesake of the facebook group i just mentioned and uh we talk about any interaction between seinfeld and real world in the real world uh, that's happened in the last week has any happened to you? No, not for, unlike last week where I had a really awesome one regarding my fiance and her uh, door exercises like like Morty. Unfortunately, none this week, bud. What about you? Yeah, zero for me this week, actually. Uh, it's the first, first uh, blank week in quite a while. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. Even blank for both of us. We're both shooting yeah. blanks. It comes to Seinfeld <laughs> We are. So only one piece of Seinfeld news this week, and it would have been really, really awesome uh, and a great coincidence if this happened last week. But uh, in the latest episode of the Sarah Silverman podcast, obviously Sarah Silverman's podcast, she talked about how um, Michael Richards, who plays Kramer, went off at her uh, on the set when she guested in the episode that we did last week uh, called The Money. So she played Kramer's lover. She wants affection and, uh, you know, a bit of cuddling after sex and Kramer's not really too keen. Because she has the G. 
Jimmy legs. She has the Jimmy legs. And eventually she actually <laughs> becomes keen on Kramer's, uh, you know, idea of sleeping alone after sex. And we actually, when we did the trivia for last week's episode, we did talk about how uh, it was reported that Michael Richards actually went off at Sarah Silverman because she couldn't get a line down. So the line itself was, it's probably the wind. But apparently Sil- uh, Silverman kept on saying, it's probably the rain. So she's mm. making that mistake. And I didn't actually catch the podcast. I, I will try and listen to it before next week so I can sort of get a bit more uh, in detail. But uh, this article that I'm reading from says, uh, and this is a quote directly from Silverman on the podcast. She said, this guy, Michael Richards, breaks character and just starts ripping me a new asshole. He points to the window and he goes, do you see that rain in that window? Do you see rain in that window? And I said, no. And he said, then why did you say rain? It's not rain. There's no rain in that window. The line is wind. Oh, there you uh, go. <laughs> yeah. So he wasn't uh, too happy about it. I, I would imagine that he was maybe having a bad day uh, in general. Yeah. And this was just the final straw. I mean, it doesn't excuse doing that. But, um, you know, I don't think he was an asshole in general. But uh, Sarah said, again, during the podcast episode that when uh, Richards went off at her that she got a lump in her throat. Um, mm. And uh, she think she was thinking later on that she was going to basically walk from the set. And uh, she thought, fuck this guy. Nobody calls him on his shit because he's Kramer from Seinfeld. And he, you know, because he walks through the door and gets a standing ovation. So, um, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, so, so it goes on. She returned to the set the next day to film another scene with Richards. Um, this one set in a diner. I can't remember that scene. Oh, yeah. That's the one where they're talking about um, the relationship. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. No, yep. No, I can remember. So Richards, when they were filming that scene, tried to make small talk with her, you know, between between shoots. Takes. Um, yeah, yeah, as, between takes and as if nothing had happened. And uh, she got a bit pissed off at that because she felt a bit dismissed. And <laughs> oh, uh, apparently she cut him off as he was just making small talk and said, I don't give a fuck. Uh, and he was shocked, actually. So, you know, she was shocked the day before and her going off at him. Um, he was shocked and he was didn't really know what to say. Oh, jeez. And she basically said to him, you know, you don't talk to me like that and then act like nothing has happened. I'm not going to be one of those people that joins in and acts like nothing has happened. That was shitty behavior. And uh, she said that in the end, Richards accepted her criticism and uh, that sort of opened the door for them to remain friendly for the remainder of time on set and uh, the the episode. So, okay. um, yeah, and then they became sort of casual and friendly. And uh, he would actually even call her sometimes just to catch up and say hello. Well, fair enough. Well, my Michael is a very forgiving person. I mean, we have seen him uh, with angry outbursts online and, uh, you know, he's atoned for it. So, uh, he's a, you know, he, he gets angry, but then he's uh, forgiven or he forgives, you know, he gets forgiven for it by his actions. Yeah, yeah. I think he yeah. accepts, you know, people's criticism. He's not arrogant or, or stubborn to the point where he doesn't think he deserves criticism. So, yeah, I mean, again, it doesn't excuse, you know, talking down to a co-star especially over something so trivial you know just forgetting mm. one line and i mean that's you know that's that's the nature of acting you forget your lines you get flustered you make mistakes it should just be laughed off but you know again i'm maybe michael was having a bad day but you know all's all's well that ends well they became friends in the end yeah well there you go well that still doesn't excuse like you said michael's behavior but uh yeah at least he was <laughs> he got better yeah, he was, like I said, he wasn't so sort of uh, egotistical that he didn't listen to her. And, uh, you know, sometimes, I mean, I've, I've been guilty of this before where you, you know, act like a bit of a jerk or you might say something that bothers someone and you don't even realize, you know, because you're so caught up in whatever's bothering you, you don't even realize that you've, you've mm. offended someone or upset someone. And then it's not until that person says, hey, what you did wasn't okay. And then you, yeah. sort of, you snap out of it and you go, oh, shit, I'm really sorry. And then, you know, it's all good from there. So, yeah, um, yeah a bit of humility and a bit of uh, respect from Michael goes a long way. We're all human after all. That's it. Uh, and like I said, only one piece of news this week. So, uh, yeah, short and sharp Seinfeld news for the week. Okay, very good. And uh, I'll have to listen to the Sarah Silverman podcast. Yeah, no, I um, I, I really like Sarah Silverman and uh, I didn't even realize she had a podcast, so I'd be keen to listen anyway, but I really want to listen to uh, this episode. And, you know, I'm imagining she probably even talks more about her time on Seinfeld and this was just the sort of uh, the juicy bit that got reported on. So, uh, yeah, we'll both try and listen to it before next week and maybe we can, uh, you know, break it down a bit. We'll see. Was she interviewing someone? Uh, I don't know. I didn't actually listen to the episode. I'm just, oh, I'm just right. quoting what she said. I mean, it, yep. it's like it's like based on the way that this article is written, it's like she was talking to someone on the podcast but maybe she has a regular guest or maybe she had another actor and they talked about Seinfeld don't know but we'll have to listen and find out yeah for sure for sure anyway let's take a really quick break my friend and uh, when we come back we're talking about some secondary characters from season seven two-parter the bottle deposit our very last two-part episode for the entire podcast series if we're getting really close to the end we only have about eight episodes to go so uh not many episodes remaining on the podcast so we'll be back and talk about those hello folks matt mccoy here aka lloyd braun from Seinfeld, and I'm telling you right now, 
I do not want to be a secondary character. Two-part episode, The Bottle Deposit, was season 7, episodes 21 and 22. First aired in the US on May 2nd, 1996, directed by Andy Ackerman and written by Greg Cavett and Andy Robin. In this two-part episode, Kramer and Newman schemed to make money on recycling by taking a mail truck to Michigan full of bottles and cans. But their road trip takes a turn for the worst, when Jerry's car is stolen by a psychotic auto mechanic named Tony Abado, played by Brad Garrett, and they track Jerry's car out in the Midwest. Elaine outbids Sue Ellen Mishke, Brenda Strong, by doubling her budget for JFK's golf clubs and leaves them in Jerry's car. George gets a project from his boss Wilhelm, played by Richard Hurd, but he doesn't hear the other end of what he's supposed to do. Stein Brenner sees the results of George's project and has him committed to a mental hospital. <laughs> and uh, other secondary characters in the episode, John O'Hurley, of course, as Jay Peterman, Patrick Kerr plays the LaForge clerk at the Yankees, uh, Rance Howard plays the farmer, Karen Lynn Scott plays his daughter Susie, and a couple of appearances from uh, other characters or secondary characters we have featured on the show. Mary Jo Keenan as Dina Lazari in For the Final Time and Sandy Ward plays Pop Lazari, her father. So uh, that rounds out the uh, the subplot with George and Dina and uh, George questioning, you know, George not being insane but looking insane in front of her. Yeah, always a, um, you know, a series of unfortunate coincidences for George where he, yeah, like you said, according to her, he's always just losing his mind and ranting and raving about some you know weird situation but uh yeah just a series of bad luck for george yeah and it and it closes off like it closes off that arc which is really cool. Yeah, no, it, it was a nice touch, you know. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, for sure. So a bit of trivia about the episode, my friend. This was actually a uh, life-changing episode for Wayne Knight, who played Newman. Yeah, no, I'm just uh, reading that trivia. So uh, he basically lost weight after this episode. So uh, in the scenes where he was running through the cornfield, he on set when he was filming, he started experiencing heart palpitations. And uh, that prompted him to go to his doctor and, um, you know, his doctor said his blood pressure was very high uh, and he was really, really close to developing diabetes. And uh, Yeah, that's he, crazy. Yeah. And uh, soon after that, he, you know, changed his lifestyle. I imagine changed his diet, probably went to the gym uh, and, you know, got a lot healthier. And you do notice that from uh, season eight and nine, he is much slimmer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's he's not as uh, rotund as he was in earlier episodes or <laughs> earlier seasons. Yeah. Yeah. No, and good on him for, you know, losing weight's not, uh, not easy. And, you know, I would say that, you know, the bigger you are, uh, the harder it is to lose weight. So uh, good mm. on Wayne for for you know for doing it and and keeping it up because he's still he's still a lot slimmer even to this day you know yeah he looks he looks great yeah no he does and uh you know it's pretty common for people to lose a lot of weight and then slowly regain it but uh wayne you know has remained relatively healthy you know for the last 20 or so years so yeah good on him if our season 10 and 11 of seinfeld our bonus podcast ever became into fruition and they had to bring back wayne knight uh they probably put it on a fat suit and uh put putty around his uh his head his face (laughs) Play Newman. Yeah, look, I think Wayne Knight, you know, what Newman Newman is Newman because of who he is, not because of what he looks like. So I reckon he could get away with, you know, if if season if our season ten and eleven were made into a real show, he would Netflix, still be the conniving, where are you? He would still be the conniving Newman, whether he was big or slim. Okay, fair enough. They they'd incorporate it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, no, good on Wayne. Yeah, it was crazy how uh, after that episode, he realized he had to do something and he did. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes it takes, you know, a health scare to really, you know, make you realize what's at stake. So yeah, exactly. I've got trivia about the first and a last in this episode. This is the first episode to depict one of the main characters using a cell phone, which Kramer uses in the mail truck. And this is Larry David's last voiceover as George Steinbrenner while running the show. And he continued to voice him in season eight and nine. Yeah, that's right. So everyone knows at the end of uh, season seven, Larry David stepped back and it was just Jerry running the show for the last couple of seasons. Thus, the change of tone into a bit more of a wacky, surreal vibe. Yeah, and Larry was nice enough to stick around and voice uh, Steinbrenner, which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, he was, uh, I mean, he's irreplaceable as Steinbrenner, you know. The way he accentuates everything is just magnificent. You can't replace that. It'd be too jarring if you got another actor. It's iconic, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, That's all Uh, the trivia I had, bud. What about you? uh, I've just got one more. It's not a trivia point about the episode per se, but uh, in a funny situation, of life imitating art, there was actually a 15-person operation that was busted for illegally smuggling millions of beverage containers from uh, <laughs> other states and uh, depositing them in Michigan. Oh, my God. The, the cops actually, I guess, raided the, the mastermind or, you know, wherever it was running out of. They found over half a million dollars in cash. But unlike uh, Kramer and Newman's, uh, Newman's scheme, the operation sold cans to the merchants at a discount who then redeemed them for full value. So, uh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah, that sounds very complex, trying to get them, like getting, you know, selling the cans to the merchants at a discount and then redeeming them for full value. So it sounds like maybe the merchants got a cut as well. They were in on it as well. Yeah, I guess it's to, you know, the more complicated something is, the harder it is to crack by law 
enforcement. So, you know, sometimes complexity, even though it's more, well, it's more complex, you know, it, it makes it easier to hide in plain sight, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And just my final bit of trivia, it's kind of related to what I just talked about. Um, it's actually prohibited. I don't know if it was prohibited at the time. Maybe this, maybe the volatile deposit racket that I just mentioned changed the law, but apparently yeah. it's prohibited in uh, Michigan to re- one, to return bottles out of state and also the maximum you get for bottle returns in one in one go is $25. So yeah, yeah. so if Kramer and, and Newman actually, you know, return the bottles now, I think they said that they have around $1,000 worth of bottles because um, mm. they have, te- they said they have 10,000 bottles at 10 cents, which is about $1,000. And uh, yeah. that would take about 40 individual trips to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at 25 bucks a pop, which would not be worthwhile at all and kramer had i mean kramer newman had the free mail truck but like that only make like a thousand bucks off the trip well yeah it's not a lot i mean it's yeah it's what, i mean it's, it's a ride but it's yeah it's a lot of effort though yeah i mean it's what a full day i think they spend the full day collecting bottles it's probably a two-day return trip you know it's a day you know it kind of implies that they leave in morning and they drive into the night you know they probably go to the bottle return first thing in the morning dump the bottles get their cash and drive home so it's probably like three full days yeah um, of work and driving you know Know, plus they would have had to pay for maybe a motel or something like that so yeah i mean 500 bucks in in american dollars in the mid 90s was maybe a grand now which probably look, yeah 800 bad. bucks yeah yeah, yeah 800, 800, 800 bucks. bucks which mm. isn't the worst you know i've that's fine but it, i think for kramer and newman it's more about the actual scheme than the money like the money is obviously they they want to cover their costs and make a bit of money but the scheme itself is is part of the actual the the reason for doing it you know just to get yeah. away with it because kramer dismisses the whole thing you think that kramer would be really keen on it but he's like no i've done the numbers and it's just not worth our while yeah yeah and i mean even if even if the profit wasn't 500 dollars, i think they'd still be keen on doing it because it's the joy of actually getting away with the scheme more so or just as much as the money itself a couple of buddies dropping off some cans and bottles in another state yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's all it is yeah that could have been the seinfeld movie itself kramer and newman you know on their road trip and they go to three yeah, different things that could have been a spin-off yeah i uh, i think for a movie it would have to incorporate the core four but, yeah, um, yeah yeah definitely. they could somehow write it so that they all had to go on the road trip or they're all heading down to Michigan for different reasons or you know maybe they're already down there maybe Jerry was at a show and then Kramer met up with them or yeah I don't know it you know there's something to work with there yeah for sure anyway should we talk about some secondary characters bud sure let's talk about Tony Uh, he's played by Brad Garrett Uh, he's most famous for playing Robert in your favorite sitcom uh, Steve Uh, everybody loves Raymond Fuck that. <laughs> Sorry, your second favourite. Seinfeld's your favourite, of course. No, your third favourite. Frasier's number, number two. And then Raymond's number three, right? Uh, no, I'd say that it goes Seinfeld, Everybody Loves Raymond, Friends, then Frasier. Oh, for, oh wow. Okay. I, I thought you were a huge fan of Frasier. I am. I'm being sarcastic. Okay. Oh, you were. I, I don't like Everybody Loves Raymond and I don't like Friends. Fair enough. It's hard to tell sarcasm when we do remote recordings. I can't see your uh, your sarcastic face. That's true. Actually, I would say that equally, I hate Two and a Half Men. Oh, yeah, uh, that's bad. And uh, the, what's the one with the nerds? Oh, Big Bang Theory, yeah. Big Bang Theory, they're both just, if you're listening to this and you're a fan of it, that's totally fine. It's not a judgment against anyone who does. Of course not. They're they're just not for me. Yeah, you like Seinfeld, so obviously it all balances out. I mean, if you like Big Bang Theory and Seinfeld, you kind of, you know, it's even Steven. Yeah, actually, (laughs) totally unrelated, but uh, I I think I made a recommendation last week for a good podcast called Hunting Ghislaine, but uh, I just started a new show this week never heard of it before i just wanted to watch a comedy series and i picked it randomly off netflix it's called superstore yeah i've been watching that too oh man it's so yeah it's fun yeah, it's very good. I mean, the first couple episodes are a bit like, eh, but then it gets better. Like as of season one, I've, I've, I'm almost at the end of season one, but I, yeah. I, I like how the episodes, I think from like episode four on, they get better. Yeah, there's like more yeah. character development and, you know, they really they really go to town. So, you know, it's really, Superstore's really good. Yeah, I like it so far. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's fantastic. I've, uh, I've gotten up to about season four, I think, maybe even ah, uh, season five. Sweet. Um, yeah, Kaylee, my partner and I smashed it over the weekend. Um, oh, sweet. And it's so easy to watch. Each episode's like yeah. 21 minutes. It's just- I know. It's short. It's good. You breeze through them. And uh, season three and four, just like season one's great. Two's great. Season three and four are just another level. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. I got to finish season one and then get on to season two so I can get to the, the really good seasons. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if again, if you're listening to this and you're after a new comedy, I think it started around 2015, 2016, uh, Superstore. It's basically about a bunch of uh, workers who the manager considers a family in, yeah. in just like a, a like a, a big box retailer, like a Walmart yeah, a style shop. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. In St. Louis. And it's just about all the, it, it's a bit of a commentary on like low paid workers in America and minimum wage and poverty. And, you know, it's got a bit of a social commentary, but it is hilarious. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, it's a good one. It's very good so far. For sure. Anyway, back to science. <laughs> 
Let's, <laughs> yeah, let's talk about Tony. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, Tony, played by Brad Garrett, like I said, I described him as a car Nazi. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair description. <laughs> Best way to put it. I mean, he just he's so obsessed with every detail of the car and he treats the car like it's a person. Yeah, but I mean, even to treat a person the way he treats a car is, is a bit psychotic as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like if he was, say, a personal trainer or, you know, or something like that, he'd want you know, the most the best nutrients to go into their, you know, his clients' bodies and to do the right things for them. And everything's got to be optimal. And uh, yeah, he kind of he almost like personifies every vehicle he services. Yeah, like the uh, like the detective said, who we will talk about a bit later, he, you know, he develops a very deep and, uh, you know, volatile, I guess you would say, uh, emotional attachment to the car to the point where he feels that the owner of the car is no longer the right person to look after it. You know, only he can do that. Almost like a bit of a car god complex. Almost. Why do you think, like, how do you think he got to that point where he's so, I mean, fair enough, he's really into cars and he really wants, uh, you know, he obviously loves his job and uh, he has really high standards when it comes to how he think people should look after their cars, which is, I guess, good if you're a mechanic. But you know, where you're willing to steal a car and drive it into state purely because you don't like the standard in which it's kept by one of your customers. That's just crazy stuff. How do you think it got yeah. to that point? I, I think it's probably, the, well, I think he probably eventually snapped and Jerry happened to be the customer. I feel like with Tony, he's been around cars his whole life. Like maybe his dad was a mechanic or his granddad and he's always been around them. And maybe the, the shop he works at used to be his dad's and, you know, maybe he took it over and he's probably like the owner slash mechanic. And uh, yeah, I feel like maybe he's, sick of people you know not looking after their cars enough putting in like that cheap you know cheap oil <laughs> from like those those quick lube places and uh yeah he's just sick of seeing cars being mistreated and then jerry you know he understood that jerry's car has never really been well maintained and i think he it was a straw that broke the camel's back and he just snapped yeah no i think that's that that was sort of where i was thinking too where you know you know when he maybe when he first got into you know being mechanic you know maybe after high school or something like that he you know he's always been obsessed but just slowly over time he's been worn down by the bad you know what he sees as the bad attitude and the, mm. the lack of care from his customers you know he he can't abide the fact that he has such high standards and his customers don't either don't care or don't understand or don't think it's as important and uh what i think it is that made him snap wasn't jerry's car per se but it was jerry's rejection of him he takes that personally because jerry yeah jerry says to him i just want to take it somewhere else and I think that that particular, you know, slight, according to Tony, even though Jerry is perfectly, you know, in the right to just say, you know what, forget it. I'm going to take my card to the other mechanic. I think that personal rejection as well as the car is what tipped him over the edge. Yeah. Yeah. Because he doesn't he doesn't like being rejected by customers. Yeah. Yeah. He's got, you know, it's wound up in a in an obsession, obsessive compulsive sort of personality. Um, yes. Yeah. Very psychotic. Very just not a not a very emotionally stable or, or emotionally healthy man. <laughs> and, and I believe the cops caught him eventually because I think Jerry gets his car back or he's got to get another car. Yeah, it is implied later on that uh, he does does get another car. But uh, I, yeah. I imagine he would have been caught. I mean, he was sort of driving with no destination in mind. I think he was just driving as a as a form of almost like liberation. You know, he's like, I'm going to get away from the, the misery that is, you know, the constant disappointment of his customers at the, at the mechanic shop. And, uh, you know, he's just going to drive and drive and drive and drive. And eventually, you know, that's got to come to an end. Yeah, and apparently it's a common thing because the detective, uh, Detective McMahon, he says it's quite common for mechanics to uh, snap and steal cars. I wonder if, uh, you know, Tony's ever gotten in trouble before. I love how, like, with the car, you know, how there's the scene where um, they pull up the car, they pull the tarp off over the car, and then it looks like, you know, they're looking at a dead body. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they make it out to be like Tony's a serial killer. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe he has like a record. Maybe he has a record of like damaging someone's car or, you know, like with serial killers, how they, you know, they kill little animals or, you know, they'll uh, assault someone before they do their killing. <laughs> you know, there's always like a prior crime, maybe a bit of arson or something. So maybe Tony's has had some misdemeanors or some, you know, low level, low level crimes <laughs> to his name before he stole the car. Yeah. I wonder <laughs> if it's almost like a, almost like a, what comes to mind is you talk talking about that is, you know, because he it's sort of funny that he is, you know, he is really upset with Jerry and his lack of care or, you know, what he thinks the level of care should be. But he drives it to the point where he, he does damage it. You know, it's so damaged that Jerry has to buy a new car. 
Mm. which is completely at odds with him wanting to look after the car and treat it as well as it possibly can be treated. Maybe he thinks it's almost like a possessive partner where if someone breaks up with someone who's really possessive, they begin they begin stalking them because they think, well, if I can't have them, no one can have them. You know, and they're going to yeah. they try and break them down because they just can't tolerate the fact that they've been rejected. It's almost like that mentality of like if Jerry can't look after his car or if no one can look after their car, then no one deserves these cars. So I'm just going to write yeah. them off. Yeah, write them off. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I felt like the car was personified, like the car was like, say, a child or, yeah. you know, someone in Jerry's like who's supposed to be in Jerry's care. But then Tony, you know, thought that maybe you like, you know, the car being like the child Jerry wasn't looking after it the way it should. So he feels like he should be responsible and uh, do it but then uh, he becomes so obsessed that it uh, it becomes his undoing and then eventually he damages the car he, he does the opposite of what he wanted to do yeah exactly like like i said i think it's more of a case of well you know if i can't have the car or if if i can't keep the car to the standards i want to then no one will be able to because i'm going to destroy it it's quite tragic isn't it yeah i guess so it's also quite i mean it'd be quite frustrating and upsetting for, for jerry and anyone else he's done it to yeah yeah i mean that's why i said before, at the start of the episode this episode has like everything has got a bit of action it's got a bit of mystery you know it's like a thriller you know a bit of bit of drama it, it was quite a hodgepodge of different uh, different genres yeah a bit of a roller coaster a bit of a roller coaster yeah so it was like a, a bit of like an action sequence with uh, you know Kramer chasing chasing Tony down with the the Maltra yeah we had, had everything yeah no good uh you know good mixed bag i like it mm. Yeah. Do you have anything else about Tony? No, but this is the only episode he's in, would you believe? I, I thought he was in like another episode, but I believe this was the only one. Maybe we're um we're just thinking of Putty, you know, another intense <laughs> yeah. with a deep voice. Yeah, but unlike Tony, Putty has like a you know, he's he's good hearted, so he wouldn't like damage the car or steal it. Yeah, I mean Putty Putty's kind of intense and full on, but uh he's also quite a you know, a chill dude as well. Yeah, yeah, he's a very chill dude and he's very honest too. Like, yeah. you know, when Jerry brings his car into him, you know, he's an honest mechanic and he offers a good price, you know, to get it fixed. Tony's just, yeah, he's much more intense and uh, he shouldn't be in the job. <laughs> he should be no. in jail. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I was going to say maybe in the facility that George ends up in. Oh, maybe, yeah. <laughs> they become friends before George gets bailed out. Yeah, I, I, I don't think Tony's a bad person. I mean, he does bad things. You know, stealing a car because you don't think that the, the car owner is taking good enough care of it is, is, uh, is you know, it's not very good. It's psychotic. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't think he's an evil person. I just think he needs some uh, some mental health uh, help. And I hope he got the help that he deserved or the help that he deserved like George did. Yeah, I hope he got a tune up. I tune up as well, yes. I tune up, yeah. A mental change. An oil change. Yeah, yeah. A full, I mean, given given his level of, um, I guess, craziness, probably needs a full engine rebuild more than just a Yeah, I think up. so. Yeah, just rip out the up. engine and just put a brand new one in. Yeah, a tune up is like, you know, if you're a bit mentally exhausted or a bit depressed, you go for a nice holiday for a week and you feel refreshed and you come back and you're like, oh, yeah, that was a tune up. But a total engine rebuild is like, all right, you need to go to a clinic for two years, be broken down, you know, and rebuilt as a human. I think he's That's more right. in that category. Yeah, and then he uh, reformed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, should we talk about the LaForge clerk uh, at payroll at the Yankees? Yeah, sounds good. He's played by Patrick Kerr. Uh, he's appeared in four episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm. He played a blind man, I think, in season four or five, which we haven't done yet for Curbcast. We've only done the first three seasons at this point. Yeah, and uh, if you are listening to this, we will be uh, a few weeks before this podcast ends, we will be starting a... We have actually done, like I haven't said, season one, two, and three of Curbcast, but we will be launching it as its own fresh podcast and its own feed, um, starting from season one, episode one again. So uh, yeah, keep an eye out on that and we will be talking a bit more about that as uh, we come to the end of Bibble Bask. For sure. So you'll, uh, you know, you'll you'll still hear us after the end of this podcast. You'll hear us on another one. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, LaForge Clerk, I mean, he, I feel like he's got really low self-esteem. I feel like he's probably been in the job in payroll for a very long time and he's never really tried to advance or move careers. I feel like he's probably, you know, he just does his job and he doesn't really have too much pride in it. And uh, he he's in a way, he's probably just too comfortable to change jobs and uh, or he just has, you know, the fear of trying to yeah, make change. Yeah, I would uh, agree with that. He does have a kind of a stuck uh, energy about him. You know, he's mm. just been there for forever, um, you know, and he's just the payroll clerk and he's happy doing that. You know, might be a bit bored, might be a bit depressed, but uh, yeah, he obviously doesn't have enough, whether the job itself creates his low self-esteem or the low self-esteem, you know, makes it so that he doesn't have the confidence to promote himself or to request a promotion or go for a different job. Don't know. But uh, yeah, I, I agree with you totally. Yeah. And, and he gets very whiny, you know, when he gets the call from Wilhelm's office about the project. 
<laughs> and then George is like, tell me what happened. And he gets really whiny. He's like, oh, I already I already made the other phone call, you know. And he gets, you know how he gets, like, his, his voice gets higher in that last yeah. line. <laughs> so he just, you know, it's all part of his low self-esteem. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a bit of a baby. Yeah, a bit of a baby. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how, like, he's told on the phone what the project is and he just doesn't tell George. And George is still stuck. Just going on the idea of him having low self-esteem, I think he's aware of George Costanza. You know, maybe he's had a run-in with him in the past or maybe he's just aware of him, you know, just through the grapevine. But I think yeah. he thought, because he, he got a bit, what's the word, you know, a bit uh, authoritative, I guess, when George said, you know, I'm just going to go in here and have a look around. And he kind of stood over him and he said, you're not allowed back here. He was very, you know, possessive of of his little his little office. Possessiveness thought, is a theme in this episode, isn't it? Yeah, it is actually, yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe he thought that, you know, because George is a weak character as well, Maybe he was aware of that's who George was. So he thought for a bit of a confidence boost, I'll try and, you know, stand over this guy. And it wasn't until Wilhelm said, you know, set him straight that uh, he became a bit whiny. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like he probably just gets pushed around a lot, especially with like, you know, executives of the Yankees, even players, you know, because obviously he's responsible for everyone's salaries, you know, including players. He's probably had lots of run-ins with players who are like, where's my pay? Or, you know, this is my contract. Why didn't why did I get this? And he's like, oh, shit, <laughs> I'm yeah. getting confronted by some big burly bat, you know, batter. I'm like, oh. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything else about him? No, he's only in one scene. And uh, yeah, he, he gets told of the plan and the project, but uh, doesn't relay it to George. And that adds to George's uh, downward spiral. It was actually pretty ingenious of George to, you know, get the payroll clerk to have him call Wilhelm, have the plan told to him just so he could get it repeated back to him. But, yeah. I mean, it doesn't work out, but it's a, it's a pretty crafty idea to get, you know, the information he's seeking. Yeah. But unfortunately, uh, you know, he upset the LaForge clerk and the, he didn't tell George what happened. And uh, George yeah. was still uh, under a mystery. Yeah, no, backfired. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's talk about, uh, oh, which character should we talk about next? Uh, why don't we talk about, uh, I've got a few notes on the auctioneer if you do. Oh, the oh, okay. Yeah, well, I didn't get his acting credit, but uh, yeah, I guess he just auctions, you know, high-end things. I'm guessing he's it's like he works for like a Sothers Bees, you know, style premier auction house with uh, unique bespoke items. Yeah, he just does his job, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, he's a classic, you know, well-to-do upper crust auctioneer. He's obviously very good. He works for uh, Sotheby's, which is a famous- uh, Sotheby's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's auction house in New York. It might be in other places, but I do know that it's in New York. Um, I could tell, the one thing that I just wanted to talk about uh, slightly, uh, briefly, is that I couldn't tell if he was British or if he had a mid-Atlantic accent, you know, the Fraser type accent. I think it was mid-Atlantic from what I heard. Some words sounded a bit more British, some sounded a bit more that mid-Atlantic American, but but uh, yeah, I mean, but given given where he is and uh, the clientele he is auctioning off items for, probably the mid-Atlantic accent. And he very obviously flirts with Cyril and Mishki. You know, he calls her a shapely woman. She looked mm. very appreciative of that. And then calls Elaine the dark-haired woman in the in the middle row. Just the dark-haired person, not even- The dark-haired person. You're not, actually, you're right, not even woman. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, I mean, I really didn't have anything else about him. I mean, yeah, he just kind of did his job. He was very, you know, high and mighty and sooty and stuff and uh, snooty. And yeah, he was just doing his job. He's used to selling off uh, once-off items or, or special items. Yeah, definitely. Just uh, very, <laughs> very typical. Yeah. Should we talk about uh, Detective McMahon sure. for a little bit? Sure. He's played by Nicholas Melee. He's known for A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 and The Goodbye Girl. And uh, Jerry asks the detective, he says, oh, do you deal with cases like this all the time? And he says, yeah, there's lots of mechanics that actually go rogue and they steal cars and damage them and stuff. So uh, yeah, I feel like he's, uh, yeah, that's kind of his forte with uh, Detective work. He's obviously worked on a lot of cases, but uh, he probably specializes more in vehicle related crimes. Yeah, probably a lot of Grand Theft Auto, um, a lot of maybe like chop shops, you know, and car car theft rings, you know, like maybe counterfeit parts. Uh, and also, you know, psychotic mechanics stealing cars. I feel like also like Tony and, and even Putty, they have backgrounds in, uh, you know, like being a mechanic for cars. So I feel like Detective McMahon's probably grown up again around cars. Like maybe his dad was a mechanic or, you know, maybe he did a bit, bit of mechanic work in his young age. And uh, yeah, there, and then he went into police work and uh, he found out there's lots of, uh, you know, it's almost like an epidemic of mechanics, you know, going crazy with cars. Uh, it's almost like a- epidemic levels and uh, they needed someone with the uh, the experience because he can, he can identify different parts of a car, you know. He can yeah, just say him off by heart, and yeah, and he can, and he can determine which model of car it is based on the paint. Yeah, he's got the he's got the technical knowledge. Maybe maybe he had his car stolen by an emotional mechanic and uh, or a psychotic mechanic, and he thought, <laughs> you know what, I'm going to try and put a stop to this. 
and he's become a grisly detective, you know, trying to get his revenge once and for all. Yeah, I, I don't think he's fully grizzled, but he's definitely on the way to be. He's sort of um, half grizzled because uh, he's actually quite friendly to Gary. You know, he says to him, you know, I need to ask you a few questions and I'm sorry that if it's a sore point. So the fact that he apologizes, you know, look, I'm, I'm sorry that this might be a bit difficult makes me think that he's not fully grizzled yet, but he's definitely yeah. on the way. He's still empathetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He still cares uh, and he still Mm. wants to, you know, try and soften the blow a bit. But uh, yeah, he's definitely got that grizzled energy as well. He's definitely seen some shit. Oh, yeah. He's seen lots of lots of oil (laughs) spilt on the ground. (laughs) Lots of wrecks, lots of car wrecks. Uh, It'd be awful the shit he sees. Yeah, he wakes up, you know, in a cold sweat after a horrible dream of a chop shop or something. Oh, man. Jeez. We should all take good care of or better care of our cars, right? I think so. Or just um, vet our mechanics before taking our cars to them. Yeah, well, lucky my mechanic's pretty good. Do you have a good one? Well, I just go to the um, company I bought it from. So. Oh, the dealer. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, the cool. Dealer. So far, so good, you know. So far, so good. You haven't had any, any Tonys there yet? Well, not that I know of. I mean, they could have taken it for a joyride and returned it. Like Ferris yeah. Bueller's day off with the Ferrari. Yeah, I'll have to, um, you know, make note of my uh, my taco when uh, when I drop it off. You know, if it's, if it's got an extra 200 Ks on it, something's up. Something's happened. <laughs> and it smells like burritos and, uh, you know, booze and stuff, then, you know, there's trouble. Yeah, yeah. some burritos. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Two very good things. Anyway, uh, do you have uh, any other notes on the de- Detective McMahon? No, that's it. Let's talk about The Farmer, played by Rance Howard. And uh, he was actually featured on the podcast In the Glasses a few weeks ago. So we've already talked about his acting credits. Uh, he is, of course, the father of Ron and Clinton Howard. Clinton, who has appeared on Seinfeld. He was the smoke strangler uh, in season four's The Trip, parts one and two. And uh, yeah, he, so Rance Howard, he was a blind man a few weeks ago, but now he's a farmer. Yeah, he is a farmer in Ohio. That's where they... Uh, that's where they, well, that's where Newman gets kicked out of the mail. It's booted by Kramer. Yeah. Because <laughs> of the weight. Yeah, that's right. I think he's been a farmer there his whole life. He looks very, you know, salt to the earth. He looks like he know, knows what he's doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm going to say he's probably either a, uh, a wheat farmer or a soybean farmer. So, or maybe even corn actually. I think it was the, corn. Yeah. I think that ran through Newman and Kramer ran through the cornfields. So oh, yeah, I'll assume, oh, yeah. 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 I think it was corn. Yeah. So I assume he's a corn farmer. Yeah. Yeah, and that's actually one of the biggest crops. I mean, that's one of the biggest crops grown in America, but uh, it's especially massive in Ohio. So yeah, that, yeah. and well, and obviously you see corn, so that more or less confirms it. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, so he's been growing corn, and uh, corn's a uh, you know very uh, very popular uh, um, thing, <laughs> crop. <laughs> that's the word. <laughs> popular very, thing. Very insightful. You should be. Yeah. <laughs> You should be like an agricultural analyst. Well, um, corn is very good and people eat it and it can be grown because of- I should have a t-shirt printed, corn is a thing. Corn is a thing. That's it. An analyst who puts out the basic facts like, well, wheat makes bread and people enjoy it and it's grown because of that. So yeah. that's my take on this week's wheat market. Yes. And that's my year 12 oral presentation. Yes. For VCE. Yeah. <laughs> Wheat, wheat is a plant and it gets turned into bread and bread is good. That's right. It's not wheat, it's hoit. Wheat. 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 Yeah, so the farmer, very strict uh, regarding his daughter. You know, his daughter, obviously, uh, well, we'll talk about Susie in a minute, but uh, yeah, he uh, doesn't want her to, you know, mix with men. I'm guessing not many single men, you know, go to the farm too often. And uh, yeah, he's just, uh, he's very protective, you know, probably locks locks his daughter in the bedroom, you know, so she doesn't sneak out or anything. That's a bit dark, but uh, no, yeah. But, I, yeah. I, I, not yeah, not I literally, but I mean, like, just he's just very protective, obviously, because he knows that she's a very, uh, you know, beautiful young woman and uh, he doesn't want any trouble. Yeah, I I would say that maybe he's like religious or quite conservative, you know, and uh, he doesn't think that, you know, his daughter is deserving of a man until he approves of said man. You know, I would would assume that he would only approve of someone who's like him, you know, like a salt of the earth farmer, you know, a local, like like an honorable conservative kind of man, I guess. Yeah, because even when he says to Newman, because he says he's got to help him with some farm work tomorrow morning, you know, it's kind of like pseudo payment for keeping Newman for the night. Even Newman says, oh, I'm not really good with that kind of stuff. You can see he kind of looks disappointed. Yeah, I think he thinks that, you know, men are supposed to be not necessarily farmers, but are supposed to be handy and uh, yeah, you know, good with labor. That sort of, you know, blue collar is, you know, his version of masculinity, I guess. And Newman literally had a blue collar there. He had his uh, postal yeah. working uniform, postal uniform on, which is a blue collar. So, yeah, he's a literal, literal blue collar worker. So That's he should true. have done it. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, blue collar or not literally, I, I, I think you could call being a, a, a postie, as we call them, uh, you know, a blue collar worker anyway. It's definitely a working yeah. class job. So For sure. It's always nice to have a big, strong man in 
the house. Those mailbags, they can get pretty heavy. I like how uh, when he says that, Newman, he kind of puffs his chest up a bit. He does, yeah. He becomes more yeah. confident. Yeah, he, he puts his shoulders back and puts his pecs out a bit just to you know, be a bit more <laughs> a bit more masculine. Yeah, yeah, to really, you know, he's like a peacock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's already into him, but, uh, you know, he's just more, yeah, you know, he gets that smooth kind of Newman going that, like, yeah. Oh, he does. You know, <laughs> smooth and silky. Should we talk about Susie then while we're uh, while we're talking about her? I'm sure. Oh, do you have anything else about the farmer, first of all? No, not really. I just, like I said, just old school, salt of the earth, conservative, lifelong farmer. Yeah. And just, yeah. Uh, you know, simple man who wants a similar man to um, him for his daughter. And when he catches Newman making out with Susie, he gets the shotgun and he, he starts firing, even fires in the house. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty full on. He's really, he really wants to kill him. Yeah. I think, um, you know, like you said, he's very protective. Um, yeah. You know, another instance of possession. Yeah. Another yeah, possessiveness. Yeah. And possession. Exactly. It's a, definitely a running theme in the episode. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I mean, the fact he fires off, you know, a buckshot in the house, you know, to try and get Newman, that's, you know, his, his anger's just taken over. Yeah, I mean, if he shot him, that would be, you know, potentially murder. Yeah, and, and he actually fires. Like, even when Newman and Kramer, like, Kramer sees Newman out the front and they run through the cornfield, he takes it. Like, do you think maybe he took like a shot directly at him or do you think maybe it was like a warning shot in the air when they ran off I don't know I feel like if he was just warning him he wouldn't need to pull the trigger he could just point a gun at him that would have the yeah same he actually wanted to shoot him dead that's I that's so. pretty dark yeah, yeah. actually no he's aiming he's aiming the barrel at that Newman too when they run off yeah so yeah, yeah like oh, I said geez. if he was just warning him and he didn't actually want to harm him he wouldn't need to pull the trigger because most people would comply just from having a gun pointed at them mm, sure yeah that's true yeah Newman yeah. would put his hands up but no he actually he was, god he was trying as attempted murder goodness yeah. me great Easy. Oh. <laughs> oh well, and even survived. They're, yeah. they're different, those corn farming Ohioans. Oh yeah. Well, if you are a Ohioan corn farmer, let us know. Or if you know a corn farmer or live with one, you know, I'd love to love to hear. Like, would you just you know fire rounds at someone who tried to touch your daughter? No. I mean, you know, that's uh, yeah, it's different how we do things over here. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe we're the outsiders. You know, maybe we're yeah, weirdos. maybe. Anyway, that's a debate for another day. Susie, she was played by Karen Lynn Scott. She's known for appearing in. Martin, Hardball, and Sledgehammer. Never heard of any of those movies. So Susie, yeah, I mean, she's probably, you know, she's always, she's very uh, promiscuous and uh, she doesn't have too many men her age probably turning up to the farm. She's used to seeing her dad or maybe, you know, maybe she's tried to have a fling with a couple of, you know, younger farm hands who've, you know, gone on the farm and then, uh, you know, the dad's either <laughs> shot them or, you know, scared them away. So when she sees a, you know, a guy around her age, she, uh, you know, no matter, even if it's Newman or someone like Newman, she just gets really uh, turned on. Yeah, I think she's just wanting to meet a man. Um, you know, she's probably got unsatisfied sexual desires, you know, and everyone's attracted to different people. But I feel like to be instantly attracted to Newman uh, is, you know, says a lot about how many men she doesn't see. That's right. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So she sees Newman and then, you know, she's like, oh, he's really sexy. Yeah. I think it's just because her, uh, you know, her experience with men up until Newman has been very little. You know, she just hasn't had a lot of men around her, you know, to, to sort of have a variety of who she might or might not find attractive. Any man. Yeah. And it's crazy because the farmer, you know, gives them a warning and then, you know, they, they still give in, you know, they, they give in to their desires and they start making out off screen. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, she, she does have that sort of like innocent, naive quality about her. You know, she's like sort of giving him, uh, there's a word for it, but like the big eyes, the, there's a yes. word for it, the gooey eyes or the- The doe eyes? Anyway. The doe eyes? Doe eye, yeah, doe eyes. Doe eyes, doe eye look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, and she's sort of like, almost like, not- pornographic but like you know it's that like stereotypical like innocent naive like oh i'm just a innocent woman and i don't need, I need a big strong man to you know she definitely plays on that i don't think she's mm -hmm. doing it intentionally i think that's who no. she is but that's who she is yeah she's naive she's very uh you know attractive and enticing to men oh she is yeah for sure. And and I feel like she's probably, it's not the first time she's tried to hook up with a guy. Like, I'm guessing there's probably been like several farm hands, you know, younger farm hands about their age. And, uh, you know, they probably had a fling and, you know, maybe, you know, the dad caught him. And that's probably why there's no farm hands there when uh, Newman rocks up. Yeah, definitely. That's well. I mean, that's why he needs a, a hand, you know, milking the cows because he's scared of all the real farm hands. Yeah, the, the real like the tough laborers, you know, the tough labor hands. Yeah, the legit guys. The legit guys. And Newman's like, I don't know how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, and then Susie, you know, she says, you know, I love him. Goodbye, Norman. So she understands, obviously, even though he loves, she loves Newman or Norman, she uh, probably will never see him again. Yeah, yeah, it's a, another love gone forever. Mm, yes, and hopefully she did find love eventually. I think she did. <laughs> yeah, I think she did. Anyway, do you have any other notes on Susie? 
No, that's it. That's uh, that's all I've got on any of the secondaries. I, I think before we sh- we go to a final break, I think we should touch on uh, Wilhelm on in this episode because we see he's starting to lose his marbles, and it's kind of implied that you know he talked up the project to Steinbrenner, and George was meant to do it, but I feel like Wilhelm wrote the entire project, but it was probably just all like disturbed rambling, and then you know he probably said to Steinbrenner, "This is George's project," and you know George wrote this, and Steinbrenner ran and goes, "Oh my god, this guy's sick! I need to put him in a mental hospital." Yeah. I think um, that's what's implied, yeah? Like Wilhelm wrote it, wrote the project? Yeah, yeah. I think that is what's implied because he, he starts forgetting things. You know, he doesn't remember that it, they've already had dinner and that's something about watering the plants. Oh, the um, rose bushes, planting the rose bushes. He thought that the gardener did it. And then the wife, yeah, then his wife off screen says, no, you did it. It's like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, yeah, with Wilhelm, he, um, you know, he's he's not only losing his uh, memory, but he's kind of losing, I guess, a connection to reality based, you know, it's kind of implied that um, he's not just forgetting that he wrote a report, but like you said, the report that he wrote is obviously disturbing enough to um, Steinbrenner to, you know, have him institutionalized. But saying mm-hmm. that, you know, to give a bit of credit, I guess, to Wilhelm, I'm sure that the report that he read was a bit all over the place but Steinbrenner does tend to overreact and jump to ridiculous conclusions based on not much so maybe maybe the report was a bit a bit crazy but not so crazy that anyone else would have had him committed you know Steinbrenner that's does, true yeah he does over exaggerate everything he catastrophizes lots of things he, that's he true takes something small and runs with it so I'm guessing the report was a bit a bit wacky but not so wacky that he would need to be committed it wouldn't I don't, anyone else would have gone oh this is a bit weird but not you know not made him call up the the wide van and then the two guys in the white uniforms, Herb and Dan. This is Herb and Dan. They're going to take good care of you, George. Take good care of you, George. Yeah, but no, Wilhelm, like you really see him and and, and, it, and it culminates with um, Wilhelm joining the Sunshine Cleaning Cult. Yeah, he's on he's on a slow decline. You know, he's obviously yeah. losing his cognitive function pretty rapidly and it gets to a point where he's completely sucked into a cult. Yeah, that's it. And then, yeah, his uh, psychosis or his, um, you know, his mental illness takes over and it yeah, kind of uh, peaks at that point. Yeah, kind of another dark ending for a character <laughs> very very much so yeah. but yes now we do start seeing and then yeah wilhelm like inadvertently blames george for the uh the project failure yeah it's not like he sets george up it's just um you know george thinks he got away with it but uh it completely you know sort of backfires on him i guess yeah yeah and in a way i'm kind of glad they did that because you know it, it kind of wraps up the dina arc uh, like i mentioned at the start you know like the dina you know dina thinks that george is insane or needs help and uh, she's finally she's actually when she sees george in the in the mental institution she's really happy she says he's finally getting the help that he needs yeah you know she she's been pushing for that and then uh yeah he sees her there oh, sorry she sees him there and yeah she she's uh uh, you know, she's relieved. And they took away his belt as well. He's holding up his pants. Yeah, I mean, I mean, belts, you know, obviously belts are pretty, uh, you know, they're, they're practical things, but surely you shouldn't wear pants so loose that you can't just stand without them falling down. That's a bit weird. Yeah, I know. It's true. I can understand why they took the belt away, but um, yeah, oh, no, you yeah. think you'd have, you think you'd have tighter pants, but yeah, obviously he really relies on that belt. Maybe it's big lunches and he likes to, you know, grow into them a bit every lunchtime. Calzones. Calzones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. (laughs) You know, we haven't done that episode yet. That's going to be one of our last ones. Calzone. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Sick. I can't wait. Yeah, I think it's like our third or fourth. We've done the schedule for the remaining episodes for the series and I think Calzone is like third or fourth last. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that'll be a cracker. That'll be a good one. All right. That is it for the secondary characters this week. Uh, We're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we'll find out where this episode sits in uh, order of episodes we've reviewed so far and whether any of the secondary characters appear in our top 20. Thanks for coming in, Jerry. Sure. I think I know what's going on here and I just want to hear it from you. But I want you to be straight with me. Don't lie to me, Jerry. You know that motor oil you're putting in there? It's from one of those quickie lube places, isn't it? Well, I change it so often. Jerry, motor oil is the lifeblood of a car. Okay, you put in a low-grade oil, you can damage vital engine parts. All right, my friend, out of 161 episodes we have done of Seinfeld on this podcast, where does the bottle deposit parts one and two sit for you? That sits at number 39 for me. Excellent. Number 33 for me. Yeah, I uh, I really like this episode. Um, I me too. One of the better season seven episodes. And uh, sometimes a two-parter episode can feel a bit stretched out, but I feel like this was all solid, all really good. Um, there was no filler. Loved the Kramer and Newman, Newman storyline. Thought it was tremendous. Loved George, uh, you know, trying to figure out uh, what he needed to do for his project. You know, loved Elaine and the Sue Ellen Mishke, I guess, little rivalry um, and how the golf clubs fitted into Kramer's storyline. Yeah. And, uh, the only weak, well, not weak, but the, the part that I least, I thought, 
was, I guess, the weakest um, was was actually the Tony storyline. I, I I just didn't really care so much about him as a secondary character. Thought it was an yeah. interesting idea, but yeah. just I don't know. Just it just didn't do much for me. It was a very dramatic performance in a, an otherwise you know like situational comedy. Yeah, it was a bit. Um, it, it, in a way, he kind of reminded me of Newman. I guess you know he's very like theatrical and like totally different character. Don't get me wrong, yeah, but yeah. just his just his expression very very um over the top and and emotional and intense, kind of like Newman in a way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For me, like I said, number 33, I feel like this is probably the most cinematic Seinfeld episode. Like I said, because it had like action sequences with the the car and the mail truck, you know, Kramer chasing him down. And it's just like, there's also like a crime scene-esque thing with the car. And I don't know, just a lot of things I feel like, you know, like the cinematography of the episode was actually, was pretty good. Like you could have passed it off. Like if they, if they fleshed out the story a bit more, like they could have seriously like put it on the big screen, like in the 90s. And that could have been like the Seinfeld movie. Yeah, it was um, it was a bit more epic than uh, most Seinfeld episodes. Yeah, and just like more, more yeah, like more cinematic, and there's more like tension and stuff in some scenes. And even though it keeps its, you know, obviously it's comedic, you know, it's it's still comedic at heart. You know, there's still some other elements like of different films that were incorporated, and I really enjoyed it. I liked how you know scenes like transitioned, you know, so well. And uh, you know, even though I yeah, I didn't really like Tony much either, but I like how that incorporated into Kramer's and Newman's subplot as well. And uh, I like you know I, I I love Newman obviously, and I love how he was almost like one of the main characters in this episode. This is the most I think we've seen Newman in an episode. Yeah, it's probably the most screen time for Newman in an episode for sure. He was almost like it was almost like the core five. Yeah, no, he played as much of a, a role as the other four. Yeah, he did. He did. No, no, I really enjoyed it, man. Yeah, probably my favorite two part episode. Nice. Any of the series appear in your top twenty? Uh no, no new ones. No. What about you? Uh no, but uh, shout out to the farmer. Um, I did like him again. Grumpy old man. Love it. <laughs> you love the grumpy old men, like I always say. The curmudgeons. I do. <laughs> Very good. And that was another episode of But I Don't Want to Be a Secondary Character. Thank you so much for listening. We are down to our final episodes of this podcast. And uh, yeah, it'll be very sad to finish, but we do have some exciting things coming up later on in the first half of the year, which we will talk about later on. And uh, next week, Steve, we're doing our final season eight episode, the actual premiere of that season, The Foundation. Oh, nice. I like this episode a lot. Yeah, it's a very good one. And it's obviously, uh, you know, one episode after Susan dies in the season seven finale, The Invitation. So it's the aftermath of uh, Susan's death. Yeah, and it's uh, it's a good way for George to not just completely walk away from Susan's death scot-free. You know, he's still got to deal with not only the consequences, but uh, her legacy. Yeah, and uh, this is the episode, I think, where Kramer uh, kicks some kids' asses in karate. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it is too. <laughs> Destroys them. I love that scene. He's like three times as big as the kids and he just like flips them over and stuff. Yeah, you said it wrong. It's karate. <laughs> oh, karate. My mistake. Karate. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email bitwebasspodcast at gmail.com. Or if you want to kick our ass social. as well. Yeah, if you want to kick <laughs> our ass, you can. You can also check us out on social media. All those details are in the show notes. You can uh, listen to all of our podcasts, all, all of our previous episodes of this podcast uh, on your podcast app of choice. And if you want to rate us or review us, that'd be awesome. And finally, you can support us financially too. That's right, on PayPal for one-off donations or on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Bidwabask. And a big thanks to our current patrons as of recording, Holly, Nakia, Jeff, and Neil. So they pay $2 US a month and they get access to this episode earlier than everyone else. And they get access to unaired episodes of season 11, our current bonus podcast. That's also on your feed. We're releasing those every Friday, uh, Australian time. And you can also listen to the first three seasons of Curbcast, our Curb Your Enthusiasm episode review podcast so uh, plenty on there so be sure to jump on if you're uh, keen to support us and get some bonus stuff too that's right and finally we do have the biggest Seinfeld community online Seinfeldisms it's a Facebook group over 130,000 members now uh, so jump on Facebook and type in Seinfeldisms and uh, join in on the fun absolutely my name's Ivan I'm Stephen and we'll see you next week for the foundation you take care of yourselves and each other <laughs>